Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 49 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome author Jack Hirsch, an instrument-rated commercial pilot, an expert in the field of distressed and bankrupt companies. Hirsch is a graduate of Columbia University School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. His 2019 book, Death March Escape, The Remarkable Story of a Man Who Twice Escaped the Nazi Holocaust, was a winner of the 2019 Spirit of Anne Frank Human Rights Award. But today we'll be discussing the dangers of automation in airliners, accidents waiting to happen, his 2020 book from Casemate. Hirsch's opinions, however, are strictly his own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the podcast host or the Cosmic Controversy podcast. Hirsch joins us from New York City. Jack, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me. First off, congratulations on the book, which is a a fascinating and and often frightening read, to be honest. Thank you. Let's start with a bit of aviation history. Please explain how one of the fathers of aviation automation, Elmer Sperry, who is kind the Sperry name is kind of a household uh, name at this point, was first inspired to create a gyro stabilizer for aircraft. Well, Elmer, the father, the, the guy that founded Sperry, actually his first inspiration was to design a stabilizer for boats. He'd taken a transatlantic trip in 1898, very, very bumpy, uncomfortable, you know, just one of those transatlantic trips you don't want to be on. And he felt there was something he could do for ships to improve their stability. And he set out to invent something. And a few years later, he came out with a gyro stabilizer that weighed 50 tons. It was two 25-ton gyroscopes that sat basically in, in the bottom of the hull that spun around that would offset whatever wave action was doing. Now, while that worked, it turned out fast forward 20, 30 years and ships started to use other forms of stabilization besides gyro stabilizer. But his son realized that the same concept, his son was Lawrence Sperry, the same concept that kept a ship stable in, in unsteady, un- unsteady waters could keep an airplane stable in the air, but it wasn't going to be a 25-ton, obviously. A plane can't can handle a 25-ton spinning gyroscope in its belly. But he used that general concept of the way a gyroscope is stable in space to create what eventually became the first autopilot. This led to the autopilot. Give us a parenthetical definition of a gyro. Can you do, uh, could you do that? Well, it's a spinning top. Um, and what the ancients had discovered 5,000 years ago was that a top that's spinning is stable in space. And if you had it spinning on the palm of your hand and you moved your hand around, it would continue to point at whatever it had been pointing at. That's not 100% true if you start to bring in precession, which, which is what happens to gyroscopes, but it's close enough to true. And so in this, in what happened with airplanes is if you took a gyroscope and spun it, and had it pointing in a particular direction. As the airplane moved, the gyroscope would continue to point in whatever direction it was first pointing at. And if you could record the difference between where the plane was and where the gyroscope was, 
you now could see how you're upside down or right side up without looking outside the window. So in other words, the, the problem uh, which John F. Kennedy Jr. encountered, we think, on his way from uh, the New York City area to Hyannis, uh, Massachusetts, was he was spatially disoriented uh, because he didn't that, know? That's exactly right. Okay. And in fact, I've taken that flight many times. And I know, I think, exactly what he ran into. You lose your horizon when you're coming from flying over Connecticut, over southern Connecticut, and you turn south towards the water and where he was headed. If you lose your horizon, you need something to replace it. And a gyroscope attached to instruments replaces it for a pilot. But a pilot needs to know to look at it and needs to know how to interpret it. And I think in the case of John Kennedy Jr., something went wrong there. He, he wasn't skilled enough. He couldn't do it. He didn't trust it. And he lost his life. So in other words, uh, just to be clear, when a pilot is flying any sort of aircraft and you're in complete cloud cover, sometimes you can become spatially disoriented. So you don't know up from down and you mistakenly think you're gaining altitude when you are actually heading into a dive. In fact, what you're alluding to is if you're not looking at an instrument that tells you precisely where the horizon is and you're trying to just use your own body's feel, what you described is exactly what could happen. The body cannot tell what it, what's happening to it with accuracy. And so, for instance, if a plane is, is suddenly pulled into a climb or a plane is suddenly pulled into a turn, to a pilot with his eyes closed, it looks, it feels exactly the same. But obviously, the results are very different. You need to know which of the two has just happened to you. And so you use your instruments to tell you. If you don't use your instruments or don't trust your instruments, you can become spatially disoriented. That's the one thing you don't want to be, you don't want to have happen to you as a pilot. And you, as, a, as an experienced uh, commercially instrument-rated pilot, have you had to solely use your instruments? Yes, often, in fact. Um, you know, fly in, you fly in clouds, if you fly in haze, if you fly at night over desert, anytime you can't clearly delineate your horizon, um, you need your instruments. And I've had that situation many times. Elmer Sperry's uh, son, Lawrence Sperry, followed in his dad's footsteps, uh, did he not? He, and he recognized the value of an onboard device that could keep a plane flying in a straight line, not deviating left or right, up or down, without a pilot touching the controls. It made sense to him. Lawrence sought to invent a device that would keep a plane flying straight and level without pilot intervention. And he was successful in doing so. Yes, he was. In 1914, in fact, um, he started developing it a few years earlier. In 1914, in an air show or an air competition, more accurately, in Paris, just outside of Paris, France, he demonstrated it and, and had the world amazed by what it could do. And then he used it to, on a personal flight on the 22nd of November, 1916. Lawrence was flying off the south shore of Long Island, New York in his autopilot-equipped Curtis Flying Boat biplane, you write, and his passenger was 27-year-old Dorothy Rice Pierce. Her husband, the well-known artist Waldo Pierce, was away in France driving ambulances to play his part in the Great War. I just found it interesting, though, that not only was Lawrence Ferry responsible for the autopilot, he is claimed to be responsible for um, the Mile High Club. And it's <laughs> that story, in fact, that, you, that you just, you've just told. So... In my research, I found the interviews that this woman did after the crash with the New York Times. And nowhere does it even hint at uh, an issue about the fact that she was married and he was not. 
Um, so my guess is people just trusted them. The fact that they ended up in the water naked after the plane crashed um, and they continue to trust this couple, I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> but but those were the facts. So, But you write the, that the duck hunters found the couple wearing not a stitch of clothing. And you cite this as a classic example of the dangers of automation complacency. As Sperry and Pierce expected the Sperry automatic pilot to keep their biplane straight and level while they were engaged probably in quote-unquote non-flying activities, the founding members of a unique club, the Mile High Club. I, I think the odds that they lost all their clothing, both of them, in the crash and yet lived to tell about it, and he had virtually no injuries. She had apparently broken her pelvis. Um, but the fact that they weren't wearing a stitch of clothing tells me that it wasn't the crash. Um, <laughs> okay. But what's but to take it sort of to its next level, I bring up that story because it, I, in fact, use it as part of the introduction into complacency, that automation complacency that's common in any form of automation, whether it's a self-driving car or an airplane under automation or go back to the 1700s when when the loom was invented. Um, I'm sure complacency came across there for the people who were watching the looms in operation for anybody controlling automation or being controlled by automation it needs to be monitored and monitoring can be a boring thing in the case of, of Lawrence Sperry uh, and Miss Pierce what they were doing probably wasn't that boring but the fact is that they were trusting it and not paying attention to it well that's what sho- what's shocking to me though this is 1916 two years really yes. after he invented this aircraft were not that uh, reliable anyway at that point I'm not casting aspersions on his technology or or the Curtis biplane, or anybody involved, but it's it's kind of shocking that in that early era of aviation, that he would have that much much trust to engage in this sort of activity if that's in fact what they were doing. Well, I can't agree with you more, but but I think you hit it. It's the word trust, and I think that he trusted what he had designed and built. Um, he knew it was going to work. What he didn't know was that if he just kicked it with his foot or she kicked it with her foot and you didn't notice it, you'd end up in the water. And so they did. Were crew during the, those early days uh, more cavalier about safety uh, than they than they are today? I'd have to say certainly not. Um, and in fact, what's interesting about that entire scenario is that autopilots started to show up in commercial aircraft in the 1930s. They were very rudimentary autopilots. They just, as you said, kept the plane going straight and level. But they were installed in Eastern Airline planes in 1931 and in United Airline planes in 1932, and they were not used very much. They were in a lot of World War II bombers and not used very much. Pilots didn't trust them as much as we do today, other than the story about Lawrence Sperry. Pilots wanted to fly planes, and they thought the way you flew a plane was you had your hands on the yoke and your feet on the rudder pedals and, your, and one of your hands on occasion on the throttles, and that's how an airplane flew. And so the adoption of autopilots, technically they were installed in aircraft, but the actual use of them wasn't really that key to aviation until after World War II. You're right, the beginning in the mid-1950s, automatic throttles, auto throttles, put engines under electronic control. The pilot instructs auto throttles to do one of two things, either maintain a specific amount of power or thrust or hold a specific airspeed. Automation got to the point where not only could they keep a plane going straight and level or turning when they asked it to turn, but 
if you could also help a pilot by controlling either its airspeed, the plane, his plane's airspeed, or its thrust coming out of its engines, you would take that much more workload off of the pilot. So depending on what scenario, situation a, pilot, a plane is in, takeoff, for instance, in takeoff, you want full power and your speed continues to climb until you get to whatever designated speed you want, 250 knots or 300 knots. But so in that case, you want an auto throttle that holds a certain power setting, in this case, full power. But in another setting, you might want, uh, you might be in a scenario where you want a speed to be held even while you're turning or climbing or descending, in which case you would set it for that. And an auto throttle could make that happen. So the term avionics, if memory serves me, was coined by one of the editors at the venerable trade publication Aviation Week and Space Technology Magazine, my own former employer, and it means aviation electronics. So were avionics the first step towards total automation in aircraft? Well, pro- probably the second step, because the first step, of course, was before you really had that much electronics. You had Lawrence Sperry and his gyro stabilizer. Uh, and then you had the rudimentary autopilots that showed up in the 30s and 40s. But no question, as planes became more sophisticated and as electronics became more important, um, you know, as planes got heavier and faster, you needed hydraulics and you needed servos so that the strength that the pilot had would be multiplied by the strength that the electronics and the and the hydraulics could put to move the control surfaces. So you put that together with better instrumentation, better sensors, and yes, in that sense, the the growth in avionics paralleled the growth in automation in aircraft. So you note that some pilots are relying so much on automation, their hard-earned stick-and-rudder skills are diminishing. Sometimes the automation is too complex or confusing to be properly mastered, and sometimes the automation simply goes rogue. So using your last comment about um, automation going rogue, Qantas 72, uh, an an Airbus flying between um, Singapore and Australia, beautiful clear day over the Indian Ocean, the the Indonesian Sea, um, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the nose points down about nine nine degrees, uh, and more than 100 passengers are injured, some of them very severely injured. The pilot couldn't figure out why it turned out that the avionics picked up a 1 in 28 million chance of a rogue data point and believed it it was rogue and they and this instrument as i said one in 28 million chance the computers believed that the sensor that had thrown this piece of data out at it was correct and that the nose was pointed high into the sky and shoved the nose down and it took three seconds for the pilot to regain control and about a minute later it happened again good gosh and so they went and they they declared an emergency, and they landed it safely. It didn't happen a third time. He got it on the ground. But the best word I could come up with for what happened to the automation was, in that case, it went rogue. But then when you talk about pilot proficiency... And, and just, just, just to clarify, now, when was this sure. Qantas 72 flight? So on October 7, 2008, Qantas Flight 72 gave us the perfect example of, of a rogue event in automation. It was a five-hour flight, 2,400 miles. So uh, you write that distracted pilots can lose focus and they can lose situational awareness. And when that happens, accidents are not far behind. It's it's the reason for the sterile cockpit rule below 10,000 feet. So what's a sterile cockpit? 
So sterile cockpit means that below 10,000 feet, the crew cannot speak about anything other than what's important for their flight. They can talk about the weather. They can talk about where they're landing and how they intend to land it. They can't talk about the hockey game they saw the night before um, or what they think that they're going to do for dinner that night. And it happens. And because of one particular crash where they violated the sterile cockpit rule, it's clear the, the negative impact that it could have on a, a crew and its passengers. And in fact, that's the case that we're going to talk about now. And it involved right. very tired, distracted pilots, specifically the captain, Marvin Renslow, and the first officer, Rebecca Shaw, on board Colgan Air Flight 3407, a Bombardier Q-400 turboprop, a short hour-long flight from Newark Airport to Buffalo, New York, on February 12th. 2009 with 45 passengers and two flight attendants on board. So in the Bombardier Q-400, you write, as well as in many large commercial aircraft, the main stall warning is a stick shaker. The control column actually vibrates, not so much that it can't be handled, but enough so that it is unmistakable and it makes a loud rattling noise, warning the pilots that their airplane's combination of slow airspeed and high angle of attack puts it very close to stalling. Airplanes that move through the air, you can think of a little bit as like a ship going through water. The angle of attack is the difference between the direction they're flying in and what the wings, the, how the wings meet the air. So if the wings meet the air perfectly flat, like if you think of your palm and you flatten your palm and you're in a car and you stick your hand out the car window and you flatten your palm so that it gets as little air resistance as possible, that's essentially a zero angle of attack. But if you tilt your palm up a little bit, now you've installed some angle of attack and you're going to feel the air hitting you on the palm, on your palm and pushing your hand back. Well, for airplanes, it's the exact same thing. And planes are designed to fly at a certain, up to a certain amount of angle of attack. Beyond that, the plane's wings quit flying entirely. So a plane that's flying at 300 knots is going to have a little bit of an angle of attack, and a plane that's flying at 150 knots is going to have a little bit more of an angle of attack. But if that plane that's going slower raises its angle of attack too high, it suddenly stalls, and the nose will drop. Generally, the nose will drop, I should say, um, and the pilot needs to recover. And you write that if the stick shaker is triggered, uh, you note that the Q-400's autopilot is programmed to disconnect immediately, setting off a horn in the cockpit. Uh, you're right, that's what happened on Colgan 3407. Was this a uh, stall warning due to ice on the wings? Well, great question. It, it, it sort of was due to ice on the wings. What happened in that flight was that the crew knew that they were flying into an area. When they, when they were headed towards Boston, they were going to encounter the possibility of having ice on their wings. And in fact, they did have a little bit, but not enough to make any difference whatsoever. Because they were concerned about it, they set a switch in the cockpit to try to remove any ice that might be building up. But at the same time as they set that switch, the avionics and the airplane were designed so that if the plane was within 20 knots of stalling, if tw within 20 knots of the angle of attack being too great, the stick shaker would go off. Now, what a stick shaker does is it tells the crew by shaking the, the control column or the stick, as they would call it, by shaking it, they tell the crew that you're very, very close to stalling. You haven't actually stalled, but you're really close. 
But in this case, because they were concerned about icing, it was going to go off 20 knots, 23 miles an hour faster than it otherwise normally would. So in other words, it get, all it really did was give them a huge margin of safety, which should have been perfect. But in this case, because the crew had violated the sterile cockpit rule and they were chatting away, when the stick shaker went off, the captain, Renslow, panicked and didn't really react the way he'd been trained to react. You're trained to push the nose down. He pulled it back out of fear of being too close to the ground. Or, or I mean, that's conjecture because we don't really know what he was afraid of. And he held it towards his stomach for 20-some-odd seconds, and the plane really did stall and crash. So why do you think he thought he was a, he didn't trust his altimeter? No, I think he just panicked and just never never came out of it. There's There's no other explanation for it. He was an experienced pilot. He'd been trained to react properly. He had reacted properly in tests. You know, a lot was made of the fact that he didn't pass certain check rides. While it's true he wasn't Chuck Yeager, he did pass the tests for how to react to these scenarios. And when it actually happened in the real world at 2,300 feet, he failed and he died. And what do you mean by check rides? That's when a, a senior captain checks out another pilot to make sure that they are following procedure? Well, it's actually, it, it pertains to every level of aviation. It's when an instructor or an instructor pilot of one sort or another checks out or or observes a pilot who's going through training or who's going through recurrent training or needs to get a, a box checked in their license to make sure that they know what they're doing for whatever series of scenarios that check ride is designed to check. And you write that, that the Captain Renslow just kept pulling back harder and harder as the plane's nose rose and speed dropped and eventually the Bombardier actually did stall. And then 27 seconds after the stick shaker went off, the plane crashed, and with Ren, Renslow still hauling back on the yoke almost the entire time. And what's your best guess? You're an experienced pilot. You've you piloted more than 20 aircraft types, including Pipers, Cessnas, the P-51 Mustang, the L-39 Albatross, and you've also uh, used full-motion simulators for the both the Boeing 767 and Boeing 777 aircraft. Well, the, my thought is that. It was just sheer panic. I mean, if you think about a non-pilot, if you say to them, if you're in an airplane whose nose is pointed down and headed towards the ground, what do you think you should do? They're going to say to you, well, I think you need to pull up. Even if they don't even know what a, how to make a plane pull up, that's your intuitive reaction. If, as the, the ground approaches, you're, you're going to do something to get that nose up. Well, a pilot, a trained pilot knows the way you get the nose up is you pull the yoke or the stick towards your belly. By the same token, a trained pilot also knows that if your plane has stalled, you need to counterintuitively point the nose down, counterintuitively for a non-pilot, point the nose down to gain airspeed. They were at 2,300 feet. A, the plane had not stalled. But B, had the plane really stalled when he reacted, had he pushed the nose down, it's probable that the plane would have recovered in less than 2,300 feet and they would have gone on and landed at the airport. But he, for whatever reason, panicked and did what was intuitive to a non-pilot. Pull back, get away from the ground, everything in your power to, to will the nose up and away. But, but it, it was wrong because the plane was stalled and, and it needed to be, the nose needed to be pushed forward first. And he just never executed. What role did the, did the ice play in all this? The singular role of the ice 
was that it compelled them to turn on the de-icing equipment, which raised that stall warning by 20 knots. Had the stall warning not gone off, had they, had, for instance, had they decided 10 minutes earlier to turn off the de-icing equipment, and they probably could have, had they decided to do that, the stall warning would have shown up where it was supposed to, which was 20 knots later, very close to the ground, in the middle of landing, something generally expected by pilots, and they would have landed and nothing would have happened. But because they were concerned with ice and they reacted appropriately to that concern, it changed the stall warning. They weren't paying attention. They were complacent. The stall warning went off. They reacted wrong, or I should say the pilot, the captain, reacted incorrectly and lost his life for it, and 49 others as well. And you write that the that they had let the Q-400's autopilot do the work of flying, allowing themselves essentially to become passengers along for the ride, chatting as they descended. Right, exactly right. It, it's okay to use your autopilot. In fact, you know, every every airline uses it. Every pilot uses it by, for a lot. But it's not okay not to be paying attention. It's okay to be chatting while you're, you're flying. It's not okay to be chatting and not paying attention. And in the case of this crew... Their attention had wavered just enough so that when they were shocked back into reality, they reacted wrong. So let's talk about the flight management system. So this is the onboard system that pilots use when they enter in the routes, the altitudes, the radio beam names, and waypoints for every leg of their trip, you write. Once properly programmed for each step of the journey, the FMS sets navigation radio frequencies and works with the autopilot to turn the plane to new headings and climb and descend to new altitudes, faithfully following its program route until the pilot takes over, usually during the approach to an airport. And if memory serves me, it literally is a keypad uh, that sits between the pilot and the co-pilot. I mean, that's the entry point where you actually touch in the, these data points on a keypad that, that, that are between the two pilots, right? That, that's right. And one pilot enters, the other pilot watches what's being entered. They, there's a double check system to make sure that what they put in is right. Because there's no way that this FMS knows whether or not a key entry was correct or not. It's going to follow whatever it was told to follow. And 99.999% of the time, the entries end up being correct. And then crews and the aircraft follow from a few hundred feet in the air to a few thousand feet or maybe a few hundred feet before they land. So this brings us to the ability for an aircraft to actually auto-land. If properly programmed and if the plane and, and runway are both designed for it, auto-land will guide a plane all the way down to, all the way to touchdown, enabling landings un, under what would otherwise be impossible visibility conditions, you write. But not, not all airports or conditions are suitable to use auto-land, are they? No, they're not. In fact, you've got to have very specialized equipment at the airport and on board the aircraft, and the crew has to be trained to be able to land using auto land. So you might see it in at London's Heathrow or at LAX in, in Los Angeles or um, in New York's JFK. And in fact, I, I've landed in London's Heathrow as a passenger under auto land. Um, but many, most of the airports in the world don't have it. I remember the first time I was a passenger on an aircraft landing completely on auto land. I think it was a 767 maybe, but uh, it was in the in, into London Heathrow in the early 90s, and it was pea soup. I, I was shocked, but the landing itself was about the smoothest I ever remember. 
However, you note that auto takeoff is not used for a couple of reasons. First, it is illegal. <laughs> I, guess <that's, laughs> I guess that's one reason, right? In the U.S., the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, does not allow crews to engage autopilots below 500 feet. The FAA wants a pilot's hands-on on the throttle and yoke or side stick, in the case of an Airbus, ready to react instantly in case something goes wrong. The, the 500-foot rule for the FAA actually has exceptions for some of the larger carriers. But again, it's the nature of a pilot to want to have his hands on the controls. I think that that's sort of a starting point. And particularly when you're going from a standing start to 150, 60, 70, let's use miles an hour, um, and you're hurtling down this runway, you want your hands where they can have an impact if something hiccups. Pilots intuitively would rather have their hands on the controls at least until they're airborne. Aside, as I said, aside from the fact that legally they're not allowed to not have their hands on the controls. But technically, a plane probably could just do could do auto takeoff as easily as it does auto land. This brings us to the Boeing 737 Max controversy. So, without getting too far into the weeds of the blame game, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the Boeing 737 MAX controversy is all about. Boeing discovered in testing this aircraft, and as you pointed out, this aircraft started its life actually in the early 1960s. It became heavier, it became longer, it carried more passengers, it carried more fuel, it had bigger engines. In the very latest version of it, the MAX, the engines were so large that they needed to be placed slightly further forward and higher than engines in the past. And the result of that different placement was that in certain angles of attack, when the, when the nose is pointed steeply up, or when they're in a very steep turn, it was possible, not always, but it was possible that the air relationship, the airflow relationship between the fuselage and the engine nacelles, the engines themselves, would cause the plane to go to pitch up even further or in a turn to turn even tighter. Well, the last thing in the world you want as a pilot is for a plane to sort of do something you don't expect. What Boeing first tried to do was solve this physically, make the plane not behave as errantly as I just described, but they couldn't. So they put in a piece of software called, the abbreviation is MCAS, Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And MCAS was designed so that if it felt the nose being kicked further by this airflow relationship, it would push the nose down. And it was very likely that the crew would never even know it was being activated when it was being used. Boeing also set up the fact that if for some reason MCAS went rogue or did something wrong, it would probably occur to the pilots that what was happening was their stabilizer trim had gone, had gone rogue. And the way to prevent that is to just turn off the motor. So Boeing pretty well had everything set up perfectly. And I'm under the impression from research that in a number of instances, when there were MCAS problems, the crews turned off the stabilizer trim and landed the plane successfully. And tell us what and the, in fact, and, and, and give us a parenthetical definition of the stabilizer trim. What makes a plane go up and down is the tail on the back. The tail has two pieces to it. It has a stabilizer, which is what is the, essentially the long, it, it's like a small wing. 
the stabilizer has on the back of and it it's, and a it's moving har- surface called and it's horizontal. Uh, the, 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 it's horizontal. Right. It's, it, it's the same shape as a wing, but much smaller and in the back. It's not the vertical piece. It's the horizontal piece. And it's made of two pieces. It's made of a stabilizer and it's made of an elevator. The stabilizer is in front. The elevator is behind it. When you want to go up, you make the elevator go up. It pushes the tail down. The nose is now up and you climb. And, of course, the reverse happens when you descend. But the stabilizer also moves. And like your palm out the car window, if the stabilizer is pointed up, air would go under it and push it up. And that actually would force the nose down. Or if you pushed it, if you made the stabilizer go down, it would force the tail down and the nose would go up. So you would use the stabilizer to help a pilot keep the nose of the plane where he wanted it. I'm going to climb, I'm straight and level and going, I'm not gaining or losing altitude, or I'm descending. And it's, it's, it works through electrical connections. And once in thousands and thousands of hours, something could go wrong and you want to turn that electrical connection off. So Boeing made sure that if MCAS went bad, it would look like runaway, it was called runaway stabilizer trim. And you would just turn off the electricity to it and you'd be fine. And in fact, the night before the Indonesian Lion Air 610 crash, the first of the two MAX crashes, the same plane had been flown with the same issue or virtually the same issue that the, the pilot of Flight 610 encountered. He turned off MCAS and they landed it successfully at their destination airport. And then you get to flight 610, and that pilot doesn't recognize what he's encountering, doesn't turn off the stabilizer trim, and 11 minutes later, eventually, they crash. So So in the Indonesian crash, there had been a problem with the sensor that told the plane what its angle of attack was. And so that sensor was replaced, but it was replaced and installed incorrectly. And it was installed with the sensor thinking it was already pointed very nose high, which is exactly the scenario that MCAS is designed to respond to, to push the nose down. So by installing it incorrectly, the flight the night before and then the flight that eventually crashed, both encountered the same problem. You write that no one, not even Boeing, disputes the immediate cause of both 737 MAX crashes and the planes, you write, were brought down by by their MCAS software. There's there's no question about the fact by anybody from Boeing to the um, aviation authorities and in, in, in the various countries that have been involved to the crews that MCAS essentially took over the flight. The, the issue, though, was that had they turned off their, their stabilizer trim electric, electricity, they could have taken over the flight. Having said that, what's I think not recognized by most of the people who are aware of, of the details of both flights is that for 10 of those 11, 11 minutes that the Indonesian flight was in the air, the captain, although he didn't turn off the, ele- the electricity to the stabilizer trim, was successfully fighting against MCAS. And had he gone on another minute or two, they were actually heading back to the airport. Once he lowered his flaps in preparation for landing, MCAS would have automatically turned itself off as it was designed to do. But what happened was 10 minutes into the flight, the the captain, who was also fighting the flu, turned the plane over to the co-pilot. And the co-pilot didn't have the skill that the captain had to fight against MCAS. And in less than a minute, he lost control of the plane and it eventually crashed. So now what are they doing to correct this issue? Well, so they've 
change the software so that it doesn't – what happened in Flight 610 and what happened in the Ethiopian air crash about three, week, three or four weeks later was that MCAS continued to battle against the crews even though they were trying to keep the nose up and, and not go down as MCAS was trying to make it do. The changes to the software in MCAS, among other things, were, was it would only force the nose down once, and that was it. And so, because when you think about it, if the way MCAS was really initially designed was so that if you were in a too steep of an angle of attack and the, and the airflow between the engine and the fuselage forced the nose higher, you wanted to get it down. Well, you, you would not put it back in the same scenario as, as a pilot. So MCAS now would only operate once. In addition to that, the crews are now training for the sort of scenarios that were encountered by the Indonesian flight and by the Ethiopian flight crews. So in other words, um, instead, so, of, instead of pushing the nose down uh, multiple times and continually, the new software is designed to only push it down once, and then that's it. Is that right? And that's once and that's it. Okay. But, in, but as I said, in addition to that, the crews are now training to be better able to react to it. because And, and this goes into a bigger issue about, about automation generally. MCAS didn't go rogue by itself. MCAS reacts to sensors. And in the case of both of those aircraft that crashed, something was wrong with the sensors. In the case of the Indonesian flight, the sensor was installed incorrectly. In the case of the Ethiopian flight, they don't know, but they think it was hit by a bird. So Boeing modified the software to address the issue so that it wouldn't happen again. And they also required additional crew training to make sure that if anything even remotely close to what had happened in the past would happen again, crews could handle it. We don't have time to cover all the material in your book, but uh, your account of the Air France Flight 447 tragedy frankly just chilled me to the core. You write that at 7.10 p.m. local time on the 31st of May 2009, Air France 447, a pristine four-year-old Airbus A330, started its engines and pushed back from the gate at Rio de Janeiro for an 11-hour flight to Paris, fully loaded with 216 passengers, nine flight attendants, and three pilots. And you note that one minute of minor automation failure, a single brief hiccup, can turn a, such a flight into a fiasco. The crew was flying at 35,000 feet. The plane couldn't go much higher. The co-pilot had been very concerned about whether that they were approaching. And he wanted to fly above the thunderstorms that, that they were pretty sure were in front of them and that he was seeing on his radar. Planes almost never fly above thunderstorms. And the captain of the plane didn't bother reacting at first to, to his co-pilot's concern. And that was important because there's a belief by the accident investigators that the co-pilot's nervousness about the weather in front of them contributed to the crash. As they got closer and turbulence started to pick up, icing also started to occur in the sensors that tell the plane how, that figure out for the plane how fast it's going. Again, this is a sensor issue. The sensors eventually triggered a failure in their automation to t that tells them how fast they're going. And so that part of their screen blanked out. Now they don't know how fast they're going. In reaction to that, what the co-pilot should have done was nothing because nothing's really changed. Instead, what he did 
was he pulled back on the stick. Again, here's the pullback, which we saw earlier. We called him 3407. He pulled back. The plane started to lose airspeed and climb. And eventually, the plane stalled. But by the time the plane had stalled, it took about a minute, all the instrumentation came back. So now they knew how fast they were flying. They knew what attitude their nose was in. They knew what their wings were doing. They knew what their engines were doing. And what they were doing is something called mushing, where they're falling with their nose pointed up in the air. Mm. It's almost like you think of your palm pretending your palm is an airplane landing. It's that shape. They're, they're looking like they're landing, but they're actually not. They're at 30-some-odd thousand feet. Crews should be able to recognize that on their instruments. This crew was made up of a pilot, a co-pilot, and a backup pilot who was also another co-pilot. Well, the backup pilot was in the captain's chair. The co-pilot was in where he belonged. And the captain himself had been out for a rest. He came back. The three of them had three minutes to figure out that this was mushing and couldn't. And they, they pancaked into the Atlantic Ocean. And so the sad thing to me is that this crew, looking at instruments that are telling them exactly what their plane is doing, couldn't figure out what was wrong and how to fix it. There's a number of factors involved. One is, until you're actually in that scenario, you just can't imagine what it's like. But two is a blame of automation itself. If you're so accustomed to automation that you just don't pay as close attention to instruments as you used to, when you end up in a scenario that you haven't seen in a long time, or a scenario that just doesn't make sense to you, you're at 35,000 feet and everything was great just two minutes earlier and suddenly you're mushing at, a, at 130 or 120 knots or, or even no airspeed occasionally, it, it just doesn't compute. A pilot should think that the first thing I'm going to do is put the nose down and get my airspeed back. This crew didn't think that. And it's impossible for us to say, well, had I been there, I'd have done it. But you do think about it a little bit because at, there's no other explanation for what happened here other than this crew's inability to translate its years and years of training into what the plane was doing. And uh, what about the pitot tubes, the, the tubes that measure the aircraft's airspeed? They were clogged with ice? Well, that's right. They, they flew into... Um, a brief period of what was most likely hail. The hail clogged the pitot tube. Pitot tubes look like, think of a pistol attached by its handle to the outside of an airplane. Uh, you can see them at an airplane on, on the ground. Um, and the open end of, of the pistol where a bullet would go out, well, in fact, air goes in. And it's the air going in, the pressure of the air going in is translated by instruments into airspeed. But hail could go in, too. And, in fact, it did. And it froze up for 30 seconds for one crew, for the, for the, co -pi for the pilot, and a minute for the co-pilot. By the time it unfroze and they got all their instruments back, the plane had stalled. But through that stall, their instruments were working. And they knew what they were looking at, only they couldn't translate it. And the other thing that kind of boggled their minds was the fact that the autopilot kept disengaging, right? Well, at first it did. And then they stayed off autopilot and they were hand flying it. But again, they were hand flying a plane that they didn't trust was telling it, uh, telling them what was really going on when, in fact, it was telling them the truth all the way through. You write that four minutes and 23 seconds after the autopilot engaged on Air France 447, the plane was actually had had head was heading 180 degrees west 
totally away from Europe. The plane belly flopped into the Atlantic Ocean at a vertical speed of around 120 miles per hour and a forward speed of 107 knots, and the impact killed everyone on board. And It's just so harrowing because it just seems so unnecessary. It, 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 it was unnecessary. And in fact, when you mentioned that the plane had turned around during the course of its four-minute fall by a total of, or three, really falling was about three minutes, by a total of 180 degrees to point, point away from Europe, that was a clue to the crew as to what was happening. In fact, the captain, when he returned to the cockpit and, and was looking at the instruments, he suggested that the crew use their rudder pedals to level the wings. The wings obviously were not level because the plane was in a turn. Well, if you're going to use your rudders, your rudders to move the wings, that's a clue to you that something has gone wrong with the airflow over the wings. In other words, you've stalled. And yet he didn't accept that clue as taking it to its next logical step, which is if you're stalled, put the nose down. They just never went there. So that's another perplexing piece of data that just makes you, I guess, glad that that you weren't a crewman, you know, looking at those instruments at that night. You write toward the end of the book that the U.S.-based National Safety Council reported that as of 2017, the chance of dying in a plane crash were 1 in 188,000 during one's entire lifetime. That's less than dying from a lightning strike over the course of one's lifetime. While statistically true, I personally take note of the airline and aircraft on which I'm flying. Do you not? When you when you get on an aircraft, you know I do, but for, but not for that reason. Um, I inherently trust my crew, and I inherently trust my plane. Um, even with the max issues, the odds are just so low, and air crews are just so well trained. And by the way, they want to get in the air because they love to be in the air, and they want to get on the ground because they love their lives just as much as I do. So while I tend to, fi- to try to find out what airplane I'm in because I'm curious as a, as a pilot and as a, an airplane, a self-described airplane nut, I don't do it for safety reasons. So you obviously make clear in the, at the end of the book that you don't ever want to board an aircraft where, where there's not a human pilot. And, uh, that's, right. that's right. But do you feel the same about self-driving cars? Absolutely. I would say maybe a hundred years from now, automation and sensors, and and sensors is really important as as we were talking about earlier. Automation and sensors need to both be utterly failure-proof in order for me to be comfortable. And I we're we're not there, you know. The Max crashes, the sensors were pretty failure-proof, and yet they don't know what they one was installed wrong, and they don't know what happened to the other one. Maybe got hit by a bird, and because of that, two airplanes were crashed. Cars, which don't have the quality of, of equipment on board that, that a, a Boeing airplane has, for me to trust that this car is not going to hit another car or a pedestrian, as we've seen happen, uh, I'm, I don't know that I'll ever get there in my lifetime. So what about uh, in, in an emergency situation, such as in, in a situation like that portrayed in Airport 1975, in which uh, a uh, wide-body aircraft collides with a small aircraft and the cockpit is basically destroyed and the the co-pilot is killed and the the pilot is disabled and a flight attendant has to land the plane you know what about uh, some sort of emergency backup automation system that could take over 
That's an interesting question. Um, there is, in fact, um, small aircraft today that have a button that a passenger can push that will land the plane. Um, and as we talked about, there is auto land, although not for every airplane and not in every airport. The technology is there. And to be honest, planes with some very basic training are not particularly hard to fly. And so it's not particularly hard to imagine as a pilot how automation can take a plane that where the crew is disabled and get it on the ground. And to have automation av available to do that in that rare one-off scenario, I could see that. But to have automation do it on a routine basis, to do it all the time, to get on an airplane in JFK and have it land in Minneapolis or have it land in LAX, I can't conceive of that in my lifetime. What goes through your own head when you get on a, a commercial airliner? Do you think, as a pilot, do you think about safety at all? Do you think about automation risk? Well, I, I think about safety from the standpoint of where are the exits um, and how many seats in front or how many seats behind me are the exits, as, as flight attendants will often tell you to do. Um, I don't think about the safety of the flight per se because I trust my pilots and I trust my aircraft. I, I, I'm a big believer in the fact that these planes are going to hold together. Wings aren't going to come off. Engines aren't going to come off. And as long as my crew is alive and well, and there's no reason to expect that they won't be, they'll get me up and they'll get me back down. The statistics will prove to you, and I believe inherently, that flying is as safe as can be. But I also believe that it could be safer. And part of that safety is encompassed by the training the crews go through. The U.S.-based airlines have, I believe, the best training in the world. And the crews, the best crews in the world. I would be a little bit less comfortable in some of the third world and even European carriers where they use automation so much that pilot skills have deteriorated a bit. But even there, it's a question of degrees. And... I'm still comfortable on any plane, anywhere in the world, as long as its aviation authority says it's safe for me to fly. Jack, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email sure. if they want to comment or learn more? Yes, of course. Well, first, there's I have a website, jackhirsch.com, and it's Hirsch is H-E-R-S-C-H. Um, I have an email. It's Jack Hirsch Author, all one word, Jack Hirsch Author at gmail.com. Um, and those are the two best ways to reach me. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Jack Hirsch, thanks for giving us a better understanding of aviation automation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>